0: And we are in a series called Boldly. And what we're doing in this series is we are taking a slice every week of what it means to be bold. And uh, most of us, we want to be bold. I mean, that's something that sort of is deep in human nature, that we want to be known as people that are bold, that sort of take risks, that step out, that live a life that is worthy to be lived. And it's in the DNA of the church, the early church, which is what we're looking at in this series. Uh, Just from the get-go, it was extremely bold. It is part of our heritage as a church is that uh, we live in a bold community, and we are bold people. And so we're taking slices every week. I'm super, super excited about what we're talking about today. Uh, This, you know, certain things line up for me, and this is one of those messages that I'm just thrilled to give you Uh, And it's super challenging to me as well. But let's just go back to last week because we kicked off the series last week and we talked about two kinds of prayers. We talked about prayers that are really safe and prayers that may be mostly focused on our benefit and uh, prayers that probably God wouldn't have to work super hard to fulfill. Like, you know, Lord, give us traveling mercies. I love that prayer. And I think God says, you know, that's not a real hard one for me. If you're wearing your seatbelt and driving the speed limit, we're pretty good on that. Or, you know, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. You know, very rarely do we eat something and then just keel over and die. You know, God's like, "I've, I've sort of got not so hard. But we talked about there was another kind of prayer that is not so safe. And those are... Bold prayers, right? All right, let's just try that again. Those are bold prayers. That's right. Those are prayers that sort of uh, they make our mouth dry and our hands sweaty, and we're just sort of like, ah. And we mentioned that there's there's really three things that were included in this bold prayer that we looked at last week. Uh, The first thing is that we need to understand that we're in God's hands, right? that God is sovereign, that he's in control, we become bold, not because we're just sort of foolishly out there because we're cavalier or just, you know, crazy risk-takers. It's we're out there because we've got a sovereign God that holds us. And remember last week, we actually sort of did motions If you weren't here last week and you're like, you did motions, I'm so uncomfortable with motions, well, you're just really glad you weren't here last week because we did motions and I'm going to have you do the motions, okay? And you're like, I'm really uncomfortable, but this is a series on being bold, so you can do this. All right, so put out your hands like this. And we just realized that we are in God's hands, right? We're in God's hands. He's sovereign. He's in control. He is not going to drop us. And then we said the second part of it is while we tend to pray, you know, sort of safe prayers, the disciples, after they had been in just a mess, and it was because they had been bold, they didn't say, throttle back our boldness, God. They said, make us even more bold. In fact, they said, great boldness. And so that's sort of this motion, okay? So we're in God's hands. Hands. Great boldness boldness. All right. And then the final one is the idea that God then works out through us, that he extends his plan. He extends the miracles even that he does. He stretches out his hands and he does it through us. So that's sort of the motion here. Okay. Ah, yeah. Okay. So that was our message last week. Now you're totally caught up and we're ready to move on. But let me just ask you this question. Did any of you this week Pray a bold prayer. It was bold for you and you prayed a bold prayer. All right, cool. Very good. It would be really interesting, I'm sure, to hear the stories. And you know, what's bold for some people is not bold for others, but if it's bold for you, then you are doing it, and that's great. All right, so this week, what we want to talk about is what does a bold person look like? And if you have your Bibles, and you all do now, turn to Acts chapter 4, we're going to look right at the end of the passage, Acts chapter 4, and uh, basically what happens is after this prayer, something immediately happens to the community, and we want to read about that, this is the early church, the church is just getting out of the gate, something immediately happens to the community after this bold prayer is prayed. And so we read it in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32 down to verse 35. Let's read it. Why don't we read it together? I think this one we have on the screen. So uh, go ahead and read it with me. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this really is, you know, again, we sort of, We read the Bible, we think 2,000 years ago, we sort of know how the story plays out, and we don't marvel really at what happened here, but let me just put the context for what's going on here. In Jerusalem at the time, just generally, the poverty rate was 80%. 80% of the people lived below the poverty line, and this is what poverty meant in that culture. When you woke up at the beginning of the day, you weren't sure if you had enough food to eat, and you weren't sure if you had a place to spend the night. That's what poverty is back then. So it was a. People were really poor in that culture. Now, the church had even additional poverty, and the reason for that is because people who had heard about Jesus' resurrection, who had been living up in Galilee, which is uh, 70, 80 miles away, They had come down to Jerusalem because they wanted to find out what was going on. They'd heard of Jesus. They'd followed his teachings. Now they heard that he resurrected from the dead. And so they came down. So you had a whole mass of people that were in Jerusalem who didn't have any jobs, who were just basically guests. So sort of the poverty line goes up. And then you had the people from Pentecost, if you remember the story, who were in town anyway from all over the world, many of whom had become Christ followers on the day of Pentecost. So you have a whole bunch of guests basically in a situation where there's a lot of poverty. There is tons and tons of need. This is not like you know 90 percent of us are fine but 10 percent of us have need. Really it's almost reversed. It's almost exactly the opposite. And so this amazing thing happens to the community. Those people who have means start to sell property and houses and start to give it to the people that are part of their community. It is really an amazing thing. You know, the passage starts off by saying, and the believers were one in heart and mind. And that's like one of those nice, warm sentences, makes us smile and just thinks, you know, they probably sat around and sang Kuba, yeah. And, you know, they were like giving each other back rubs. And it was just, but you know what? It was so much more than that. It wasn't just sort of cheap, you know, community it was people making major sacrifices so that no one was left behind, so that no one couldn't be part of the community. They didn't want anyone to have to go back to Galilee or back to their place and leave the fellowship. So they literally put their money where their mouth was and people would come in and they would sell property. And this phrase of putting it at the disciples' feet is like they gave it to the disciples with no strings attached. They didn't say, well, I'm going to give this to you because I have a few friends that I want to make sure get it. It was like, however you want to distribute this, it's up to you. And so generosity is one of these things that we don't think that it's miraculous unless we're the recipient of it. And then it's pretty miraculous. And so that is the tangible way that these bold prayers initially work out is there's this amazing generosity throughout the whole church and no one is left behind. No one is in need. Everyone is being taken care of. And it says that in the context of this, the apostles are, are basically preaching. The apostles are giving the message of Jesus. Now, let me just ask, is that a pretty compelling message when the community is behaving like that? I mean, wouldn't that be the kind of place you'd say, well, I'd go see that even if I don't agree with the message. I just want to see that stuff happening. And so the community basically was was sort of forming this really amazing culture where people were just drawn to it, just coming in. And that sets us up for our first story, because here's what Luke's going to do. He's going to compare two stories now, one of which is incredibly bold, and the other one, not so much. And I want to jump first to the one that is not so much, and then we're going to finish by looking at the real bold story, okay? You guys all with me? Any of you still thinking about your football team? All right, if they lost, they aren't worth it. Okay, here we go. If they won, they're not worth it. All right, here we go. So let me, Acts chapter 5, turn your Bibles there. I'm going to tell you the story. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you the story. It is a story about a couple named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. And uh, whenever I talk about this message, I'm reminded of a good friend of mine who is a preacher and he gave a whole message when he was young on Anus and Sapphira. Yes, he called Ananias Anus through the whole message. Everybody was riveted. I mean, it was great. But I'm not going to use that technique. I'm, we're going to go with Ananias here. But Ananias and Sapphira. So here's the situation. You've just read. There's this amazing generosity that is pouring out, right? All this generosity is going out. Ananias and Sapphira watch that, and they think, we want to play. We want to be part of that. And so they go and they sell a piece of property and they come, Ananias comes in with his wife's knowledge and instead of giving the full amount of the property, he gives a portion of the amount. And then he says, this is all of it. Peter looks at that and we don't know how Peter knew, but Peter knew that it wasn't all of that. And he says, Ananias, are you sure that's all of it? And Ananias is like, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's, that's all of it. Just ask my wife. That's all of it. And so Peter looks at him and says a really strange thing. He says, how has Satan filled your heart? That's kind of a weird statement. I mean, the guy's giving a gift. I mean, he's, in, he, he's, he's giving something. He's being generous. You can't say he's not being generous. And it's the first mention of Satan's attack in the early church. It's the first time that Satan comes into the picture, doing something to try and disrupt the church. So Peter looks at him and says, Ananias, let me just tell you this. Before you sold that property, that property was yours. You didn't have to sell it. God wouldn't have done anything to you. That was yours to do with what you wanted. Once you sold it, you didn't need to give all the money. We would have been so happy with a portion. Here's the problem, Ananias. You guys know the problem? The problem is you said, that's it, that's all of it. You're lying. You're lying to me. That's bad. Worse yet, you're lying to God. And it says, at that moment, Ananias was struck dead, died. I mean, it was staggering. Three hours later, Sapphira, who doesn't know what's going on, comes in. Husband's late for dinner. Always late for dinner. Comes in, and says, "Hey, anybody seen Ananias?" Peter looks at her and says, "Sapphira, I have a question for you. The money that you guys gave from the field, was it all the money?" And you just get this picture that Peter's saying, "Now, Sapphira, this is so important that you answer this right." This is so important. Don't, don't, don't go there. Don't, don't do what you're so tempted to do. Don't go down that road. Just be honest. Just be honest. It will work out so much better if you're honest. Sapphira, was this the amount that you got for the property? And she says, that's all of it. And Peter says, the guys that carried out your husband are ready to carry you out, and she drops over dead, and it says at that point, great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events, I bet it did, I bet it did, it's like, whoa, whoa, did you hear what happened down at the church the other day? Ananias and Sapphira, they're goners. Now, let's look at this story for a second. One thing that I think is cool, if you've ever wondered, you know, can you really rely on what the Bible teaches? I'm just telling you, if Luke is trying to drum up support for the church, if he's trying to make the loving God look really appealing, I don't think Luke is putting that story in the Bible. But you know what? Luke is a historian. He's putting the story in. That's what happened. If you have to try and figure out how to explain it, we'll figure out how to explain it. But I'm putting the story in. Anyway. Here's the deal. The deal was not that they weren't generous enough, right? Because they were more generous than most. The deal is that they were pretending. They were acting like they'd done something that they hadn't done. Now, why is that such a terrible thing? Why is that the kind of thing where God says, I can't let that stand? That's actually an attack by Satan. That could derail the church so badly that I've got to make a very strong statement right now I've got to bring Ananias and Sapphira home to me right now and get them out of that community. It's so important. So what's the problem here? Well, here's the deal with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy kills community. And you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. When you're around somebody that's really fake in the church, they're acting like they're all that and you know they aren't. Do you feel like you're drawn to that kind of a person? Is that the kind of person you just go, oh, I just want to hang out with that person and share my life with that person. I just love that. You know, no way. You're like, oh, that person makes me so angry. That person, oh, I hate that. I hate it when that person does that. It divides the community. But here's even something more. How many of you know, let me just ask you, because I know somebody, how many of you know somebody that pushes you away as a Christian or pushes away the church because they say Christians are hypocrites? You know anyone like that? You know, my dad never could get over the fact that Christians were hypocrites. Never. It was the number one stumbling block for him. And he'd say, Kevin, I think you're great. There's just too many Christians that are hypocrites. It repels people from the church. Hypocrisy repels people from the church. And then finally, and this, you may not have thought about this, but it actually blocks you from becoming intimate with God because God cannot relate to a phony. In fact, you're further from God when you're pretending to be good than at any other time. It is the worst thing you can do is to pretend to be good. And in fact, the gospel really starts with us not, at, not coming to God and saying, God, I am so good. It's God, I am a sinner. God, I can't do it on my own. God, I fall short. God, I need help. Hypocrisy shoots right at the core of the gospel and destroys the church and makes the church impotent as far as trying to reach the community. And so God looks at it and says, we cannot go down this road. I've got to send a strong message. Ananias and Sapphira, you come home with me. We're making a statement here. Now let me just be really clear what hypocrisy is and isn't. Hypocrisy does not mean that you're perfect. Hypocrisy does not mean that you live up to everything that you believe. None of us do. None of us do. Hypocrisy doesn't mean that you tell everyone every terrible thing you've done. You don't have to go around and just tell everybody, I'm a scum, I'm a scum, I did this, I did that. That's not cleaning up hypocrisy. Here's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you're not. So if I'm, if I'm gossiping and I've just given a message about not gossiping, that does not yet totally qualify for hypocrisy. But it becomes very hypocritical if I say, no, I'm not gossiping, and in fact I never gossip. Now I'm becoming hypocritical. If I'm gossiping and I have no interest in changing, I'm starting to cross the line of hypocrisy. It is not, just let me make this so clear, it's not being imperfect, it's being honest about your imperfections. That's what it is. And you know what? While that's humbling, that is compelling. Don't you like being around someone who's honest and authentic and admit when they fail at times? It is so much more compelling than being around that person that seems to have it or portray it. It's all together, all the time. And so God steps in and just says, we can't have this. We just can't do it. At the end of the message, I'm going to have you just reflect a little bit. Do you have any areas in your life where hypocrisy is kind of an issue for you? And the time now is just to be honest with it. That's the way to fix it. Just be honest with it. Be honest before God. Be honest when appropriate before others. And hypocrisy disappears. But hypocrisy pushes away. That's kind of the big point. And in this story, Ananias and Sapphira... Hypocrisy pushes away. So I want to go now to the character, actually, that is very cool. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is probably one of the most underrated heroes in the book of Acts. Maybe the most. And you're going to see why as we tell through his story. So this guy named Joseph comes. The disciples give him a nickname. They call him the paraclete. Now, for some of you, paraclete, what does that mean in the New Testament? Paraclete is given to another person by name, and that is Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Uh, Barnabas here is called the son of the paraclete. So right there, you're starting to get a picture. This guy's kind of cool. This guy is kind of powerful. Son of encouragement is the way that it's, it's uh, translated here. That he was the kind of person that whenever he came into contact with someone, he would give encouragement to them. Now, I just want to be super clear about this because encouragement is so watered down. We water it down so much. It's like, oh, that person's such a great encourager. They sent me a note. And I love getting notes. And so I'm not saying don't send me notes. I like notes, and I'll call you an encourager. I just want to tell you, It's more than sending a note. It's more than complimenting someone. Encouragement is such a larger thing because encouragement literally means in courage. It means giving courage to somebody else. It means making them courageous. It's doing something to make them feel like they can step in to what God has for them. And Barnabas was a master at it. And the first thing that we learn about Barnabas is he's one of these super generous guys that says, listen, I'm going to give money, I'm going to give my family inheritance so that no one is left behind, so that no needy person cannot be part of our community. I am going to, and this is hypocrisy, pushes people away, encouragement, encouragement pulls people in. Encouragement pulls people in. That's the definition we're going with. This week when you're thinking about it, am I pushing people away? Am I pulling them in? Encouragement always pulls people into community, pulls people toward God. That's what an encourager does. And an encourager does it so much larger than just sending a note or saying a kind word. Those are parts of encouragement. It is so much broader. Here, with Barnabas, we see that he gives money, actually, to encourage people. He gives money to bring them in. The next time that we see him is in Acts chapter 9. And let me just tell you, so flip over to Acts 9. It's going to be a little Bible drill here, okay? So Because we're going to flip around. Acts chapter 9. Uh, the church at this point is being persecuted. And people are dying. I mean, now it's getting ugly to be a Christian. And there is one really famous persecutor. He's into genocide, actually. He was sort of the Hitler of his day. Anybody want to guess who that might be? Saul. Saul. You guys are brilliant. That's right, Saul. Okay, so Saul is going around. He is literally killing people. He was there for the first person that was killed in the church. And he's arresting people, and he's stealing their property. He is doing anything he can to wipe the church out. And on the road to Damascus, some of you know the story, he's riding on a donkey a bolt of lightning hits him, literally knocks him off his donkey, and he lands on the ground. And, uh, and Jesus comes to him and basically says, Paul, stop, Saul, stop persecuting me. Stop persecuting the church. And Paul becomes a Christian. It's an amazing conversion story. You can read it in chapter 9. Well, after that, uh, Paul, uh, after he's sort of healed because he's knocked blind for a little while, but after he's healed, he starts going around in Damascus, and he starts telling everybody about Jesus, and eventually he thinks, you know what, I need to get down to Jerusalem so I can meet the guys, the disciples, that's where all the action's happening, so he goes down to Jerusalem, and when he shows up, he's expecting, people be so excited that I'm here, people are going to be so stoked that the person that was killing them all is now on their team, is that what happened? No, put yourself in the disciples' position. You would not know what to think when Paul shows up. So in Acts 9, we read these words. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Whoa, that's weird. Uh, Not believing that he really was a disciple. They thought it was a trick. Of course, he's just trying to get into the inner circle. He's going to kill them all. But Barnabas... Barnabas is so awesome. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Literally, that phrase means Barnabas took him under his wing and brought him in to the disciples. He told them how Saul, Saul, Paul, same person, uh, on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached Fearlessly in the name of Jesus, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, you got to look at a couple things because again, we sort of dismiss this. We go, nah, no big deal. You know, Barnabas is just stepping in, sort of helping out. Barnabas is living in Jerusalem too. When Paul shows up, do you think Barnabas is absolutely sure that Paul's a believer? I mean, why would he know if he's a believer? He's taking Paul's word for it. He is putting himself at immense risk, stepping out and saying, okay, Paul, I'm going to trust you on this. I'm going to trust that this is true. So he's taking a huge risk. Barnabas is being very bold here. When he takes him to the disciples and Paul shows up with Barnabas and the disciples are looking at them, who do you think they are trusting when they accept Paul? Barnabas. They're trusting Barnabas. They aren't trusting Paul. They don't trust Paul. Barnabas has such a reputation. And in this point, Barnabas says, I'm willing to put my reputation on the line, believing that Paul is worthy of bringing in. I will put my reputation and my safety on the line to bring this guy in. It is an amazing step of courage. And I just want to ask you this question. How much different would Christianity be if Barnabas had not done that? If Paul had never gotten in with the disciples? If Paul had never become part of the church? When we say that Barnabas is sort of the unsung hero of the New Testament, you think of the ramifications of Paul not being accepted by the church. And you start to understand what encouragement is and how extremely powerful pulling people in is. Amazing. Okay, next story. Just going through this, because there's a couple of other cool things that happen here. Uh, there's a church that has sort of broken out up in Antioch. And Antioch is up in Syria, uh, 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 actually up in uh, what's now sort of current Turkey, So it's far away, and it is a heathen city, uh, and it's a very dangerous city, and lots of other gods that are being worshipped there, lots of immorality. But some Christians go up there, some new believers, and start spreading the word. And so a little church breaks out. And the disciples are intrigued, because there's been no church that has broken out in Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. This is the first one. So they think, we've got to send someone up there to figure out what's going on, and to encourage those people. So who do you think they send? They send Barnabas. And it says that Barnabas goes up there, uh, and when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. Sorry, Acts 11:22 through 24. Saw what the, uh, God had done. He was glad and encouraged them, and encouraged them. All to remain true to the Lord and all, with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And so we have the first Gentile church. And this is so interesting because who do we usually think is the missionary to the Gentiles? That would be Paul. He was not the first. You know who was the first? Barnabas. Barnabas is the first person that crosses over and says, I will bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I will build a church with people that are non-Jews. It's an amazing story. In that church, you know what uh, phrase is coined for the first time? You know what believers are called for the first time in Antioch? They are called Christians. The, The term Christian comes out of Antioch. That church becomes a vibrant church under Barnabas. Eventually, Barnabas goes up because Paul's been put onto the shelf for, I don't want to get into that, but he's been put onto the shelf for a while. Barnabas goes and gets Paul. He says, Paul, I want you to co-pastor with me. Come on back down to Antioch. We will co-pastor. And then eventually, they're sent out on missionary journeys together. And this is such an interesting thing. In fact, this to me is the most courageous thing that Barnabas does. And it's so subtle, but I just know if it was me, this would have been the hardest of everything. When they first go out, Always in that culture, this is really cool, always in that culture, the placement of names is key. First name always means prominence. Second name is always the second chair. When they first start going out, read it in the book of Acts. The first times they go out, here's how the order goes. It goes Barnabas and Paul. Okay, let's try that again. Barnabas and Paul. This is bothering everybody, isn't it? Has this been bothering you the whole service? I'm sorry. That's better. All right. Where was I? Barnabas and Paul. Okay. After they travel for a while, now it is Paul and Barnabas. You know what's the last reference to Paul with Barnabas? Paul and his companions. That is staggering to me that Barnabas, who mentored Paul, he was the leader. Barnabas willingly puts himself in a place to say, I'll take the second chair. That's okay. In fact, I'm kind of stoked that Paul's stepping into it. I'm cool with supporting him. I'm cool being the companion. I love that. That to me takes so much courage. So much courage. That is the essence of an encouragement person. It's not about me. I'm pulling you in because it's about you. Amazing. Last story I want to tell you. So Paul and Barnabas are going out on their missionary journeys. They decide to go out again. And Paul says, uh, hey, Barnabas, I think we should go and visit all the churches we went to, encourage them, see how they're doing. Barnabas goes, great. Hey, I've got a great person that we should take, a guy named John Mark. Paul knows John Mark. John Mark had gone with them before. And you know what? He abandoned them. The tough, it got going. The, it got into a tough situation. And John Mark said, I'm going home. And he left them high and dry. Uh, it's implied that it caused great trouble to them that John Mark left before he should have left. And so now they're getting ready to go, and Barnabas comes to Paul and says, I want John Mark to go. What do you think Paul says? You guys know Paul? What would Paul say to that? No way. No way. The mission's way too important. Way too important. He bailed on us before. How do we know that he wouldn't bail on us again? And Barnabas says, I really think he deserves a second chance. I deserve that somebody should stand up for him. I think he needs to be pulled in, Paul. Paul's like, are you crazy? Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever do that? And I'm sure Barnabas didn't say this, but here's what I would have said. Paul, who did that for you? Wasn't there a time when nobody would bring you along? What would have happened if everybody had just said, forget it, not Paul? But I doubt Barnabas did that. So a sharp disagreement comes up. They finally split ways, actually. And Paul takes Silas. And you know who Barnabas takes? He takes John Mark. He takes the one that's unproven. He takes the one that could leave him in the lurch again. Again, amazing courage shown by Barnabas. But Barnabas's deal is, I'm pulling this guy in. I'm pulling this guy in. They go their separate ways. We find out. We find out later, just that you know, Paul and Barnabas got you know they reconciled. It was okay, but they never traveled again. They never traveled again. But I love the way this story ends. And again, if you're if you're quick with your fingers, go over to 2 Timothy chapter four, verses nine through eleven. This is written. 2 Timothy four nine through eleven. This is written. Last thing that Paul ever writes. He's about to die. This is the last thing that he writes. This is the last paragraph that Paul ever writes. What was on his mind right before he died? He's writing to Timothy, and he says these words. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Census." has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That is the power of an encourager. Barnabas said, Mark deserves another chance. He can have it with me. Incidentally, John Mark did one other thing that was kind of famous. You know what he wrote? He wrote the book of Mark. Barnabas never wrote a book in the Bible. He had a huge impact, though. All of Paul's writings, the Gospel of Mark because somebody was an encourager. Being bold means encouraging. It does not mean just writing notes. It doesn't mean just complimenting someone or encouraging them verbally. It does mean that, and it means a lot more. So here's what I'd like you to reflect on. Okay, And if you would, just close your eyes and bow your head. I just want us to walk kind of through some stuff to think about as we close here. First, the hard thing to look at, Lord, is hypocrisy. And right now, just as you're sort of thinking, and maybe as we were talking about it a little bit earlier in the morning, is there an area in your life where you feel like you're not being real? where you are pretending. You're portraying something that is not honest about you. And so you were convicted during that time. And here's the great news. Hypocrisy immediately starts to melt away when you come clean to God. And so I'm just going to give all of us 15 seconds. 15 seconds. If you've got something in your mind, you feel like, I'm not honest in this. I haven't even been honest with God. This is your chance to start here, to be honest with God. So let me just give you a few moments to talk to him. Then I want you to think about this question who has been an encourager in your life? Who was someone that grabbed you and pulled you in when you were kind of flailing, when you needed a hand, when you were on the outside of the group, when you had resource needs, when you needed someone to believe in you? Who was somebody that grabbed you and said, listen, You're with me. You come with me. I'm pulling you in. And if somebody comes to your mind right now, I'm going to give you 15 seconds just to thank God for that person in your life. Maybe it's somebody from the past. Maybe it's somebody that's sitting next to you right now. But let's just take a moment and thank God for how this person has been used by the Holy One to change our life. finally I want to ask you this question who are you to encourage this is a call that comes to all of us this is not just for those that have the spiritual gift of encouragement or those that are extra mature Christians uh, not even Christians really this is a call that God gives us he says you are to encourage you are to pull people into community You are to pull people to me. That's part of the DNA of the church. That's part of what the founders had deep in their soul. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the paraclete does. Paraclete pulls people in, and he uses human flesh and blood to do it. He uses you and me. So the question is, who is it that God's placed in your life Who's the person that's coming into your mind right now? And you're thinking, that's the person I need to encourage. And we encourage in diverse ways. Sometimes it's actually giving something tangibly. We know that we need to sacrifice and give something to someone. Sometimes it's befriending someone or stepping into their mess. And you're thinking, oh, it's so messy. I don't want to step into that. And yet you know that God's calling you. You know what? You need to be an encourager. Roll up your sleeves. Maybe you need to roll up your your pants because it's deep. And you've got to go in and say, Listen, you're not going to do this alone. You're doing this with me. I'm coming to encourage you. Maybe it's believing in someone when no one else has. Maybe it's inviting somebody into your group because you know they're lonely. You don't even know if they'll say yes, but you know they're lonely. And you're risking rejection, but you're going to say, no, I'm going to invite them in. If they choose not to come, that's on them. I'm going to invite them. I'm going to encourage them. Who do you encourage this week? Who do you become Barnabas to? Lord, we bow before you. We are so, so grateful for how you have put people in our life that have pulled us in. Sometimes we weren't even looking for it. Sometimes we were desperate for it. Sometimes it was super effective. Sometimes it was an effort. It didn't totally work out, but we appreciate it anyway. We are grateful for those people. And now, Lord, we pray you'd make us Barnabas. That's part of the role you have for us. That's part of how Huntington Beach changes or Fountain Valley or the place that I work or my neighborhood or my family's gonna be different because I'm gonna be an encourager. And Lord, we know we can't do it in our own strength. We know that it takes courage and boldness that we need from you. So I pray this week, make us encouragers. Drive the DNA deep into us. We are so grateful for what you're gonna do.